Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hi, this is Jason Rodenbeck. I'm here uh, with Paul Axton with Forging Plowshares and... um, we are uh, just going to have a conversation today about the movie Vice, which uh, we both saw over the holiday, and uh, we're kind of just now getting around to um, having a conversation about the movie and our reactions to the movie. Uh, of course, Vice is uh, directed by uh, Adam McKay, and um, Adam, McK- Adam McKay uh, also uh, did the film uh, The Big Short, which was about the housing uh, crisis uh, in the uh, uh, mid to late uh, 2000s. And um, and actually some of the same actors like Steve Carell uh, was in that movie. Um, this one, obviously, Christian Bale stars uh, as, uh, as uh, Dick Cheney, uh, the vice president under uh, Bush 2. Uh, and then um, Amy Adams plays his wife and Steve Carell plays uh, Donald Rumsfeld, um, which was, was shocking to me. Um, but he nailed uh, Rummy as they, as I remember them uh, frequently referring to him. And um, the thing about vice that, that stood out, well, there's a lot of, a lot of things that stood out for me and Paul, I'm obviously going to sort of hand this off to let you kind of run for a little bit, but uh, there were a lot of things about vice that, uh, that stood out to me. Um, I think one thing that struck me was the way the word power was used uh, so often. Um, We were talking a few minutes ago and I, um, I recall recently um, realizing that the word vice obviously as a reference in to the vice presidency but also um, they sort of portray, uh, I'm not sure how accurately, we'll, we'll talk about that at some, at some length, I assume. But they sort of portray Cheney's um, desire for the vice president or for power, I think, as a sort of vice. And that's, I think, the way that word sort of plays a, a dual role here in, in the title of the film and the film itself. Um, the, the story obviously is how, uh, Dick Cheney, um, is a guy who, uh, uh, at the beginning of his life, uh, they show him sort of, um, working in a sort of dead end job, uh, as a lineman, um, uh, out in the, out in the desert, uh, running a phone line or electric line and, um, somehow, uh, works his way into the vice presidency. And it doesn't, I think, portray uh, Cheney in a a very positive light. It's it's at least. Um, let me put it this way: if you are interest, if you're if you're not a uh, sort of right wing person politically, it was a good hate watch. Um, <laughs> and I <laughs> I use that term loosely. Uh, what are your thoughts, Paul? As your um, as we're sort of reflecting on our first impressions of the movie. Well, I think we both, uh, this movie uh, was a, in other words, the idea behind it was that it's a portrayal, at least as historical as they could make it. Given now there's some moments of artistic license that uh, Cheney and his wife are in bed and quoting, you know, Shakespearean uh, uh, 
pantometer to, to one another that uh, <laughs> right. it's, it's que- <laughs> question why that not, happened. It's not likely that, that, but it, obviously that's those kinds of moments. And that's kind of common for McKay um, who uh, in, in the big short uh, breaks the fourth wall fairly frequently and has the character sort of turn to look um, at the camera and start talking directly to the viewer. And that happens in vice. Um, but, uh, there are several moments I think when, when Cheney is, they show Cheney laughing when he has this conversation with Bush, uh, too, when he's trying to convince him to run with him for, uh, as vice president and, and Cheney convinces him to basically hand over the, the presidency to him. I'll basically the- be the president. Yeah, right. he says, well, I just want to, you know, the the mundane, the trivial things, foreign affairs, the military, and he goes. <laughs> yeah, on and on, yeah, basically the entire presidency. And uh, and, and he Bush, too, sort of says, well, yes, that sounds really good to me. Yeah. And they show, uh, they, they uh, Sam Rockwell's character is going on, uh, Sam Rockwell's Bush is going on, and then Cheney, they show him sort of laughing. You can see him just laughing out loud. But of course, Cheney is a, sort of a Bear Bryant, Great Stone Face kind of character. He doesn't ever crack a. He's just always slumped in his chair and yeah. making that kind of little sneer that he would frequently give. And you know, um, but of course, you know those kinds. Of, those are the kinds of things that McKay kind of takes a little liberty with. You know him and Lynn Cheney sitting in bed and quoting Shakespeare to each other. There's a reason for that, but yeah, it's historically, Shakespearean. It, it's Shakespearean in in the the degree to which Cheney, and this is what I think McKay is representing, and maybe this is the theological significance. This movie, I think, is making a huge statement. It may just want to be one of the pieces of art that I've seen of late, uh, it, that the fiction advances then the idea of the movie or the reality of the movie. And that is what the movie is arguing, I think, theologically, is that here's this guy uh, who is purely setting out uh, to manipulate and gain power and control, maybe as an as a kind of end in itself, and almost on the order if you know if you're not thinking Shakespeare, think Batman uh, and the Joker. Uh, that here is just pure evil. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that's true, Cheney, but I think the point of the movie is here is the Dark Knight. Uh, or, or the Joker, rather, uh, that here is someone who uh, is, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory kind of movie, uh, which uh, McKay makes the point in various interviews that is, it's not that there's some sort of deep state. But, of course, what Cheney does, and, the, and he, I think, does research the film well, that he's he's read, you know, some 20 various books on him and, and there has been a lot written. So it's not hard to verify just the basic historical facts about it. But what is obvious is that Cheney is the primary ideologue that he has, you know, taken control 
of the, uh, the, not the CIA, but in fact, he's bypassing. He's got his own secret service system set up so that he bypasses the CIA. He's receiving all of Bush's emails. So literally, he knows everything uh, that the president is involved in. And that and that's the way the movie is portraying him, that the real president, you know, here's a guy who, ha, when he leaves office, he's at a 13% approval rating, which mm-hmm. may have dropped after he shot his friend quail hunting, shot him in the face. And by the way, never seems to have apologized. In fact, <laughs> the guy he shot apologizes to the Cheney's for causing them so much trouble. Uh, you know, for, uh, it's, uh, the, the reality is, uh, that here is a guy who is, uh, he set upon taking control. Now one could debate why, you know, is he truly just in this for, for power? And that seems to be, that's the New Yorker take on it. And they're, review their their point is that well the the movie may be an accurate historical portrayal except in this one point and you know they take a a comparison of donald trump i think it may be mckay himself he said you know if you had a choice between a madman uh with a meat cleaver chasing you or an uh, a professional assassin trying to kill you which you which would you prefer? Would you prefer the professional assassin or would you prefer the madman with the meat cleaver? And and of course the comparison is, well, we have the meat cleaver guy in the White House now, but in Dick Cheney you have a professional. Uh well, so there's there and that I think um that point though I think opens up another another option. Whereas, you know, um, the movie portrays Dick Cheney as, as being this sort of almost a sadistic genius who has a who who whether or not his his intentions are good. And I think that's the point of the fourth wall break at the end of the film where Cheney turns to the camera and say, and basically um it's almost a middle finger kind of moment where he says, no, I know you hate me, but I, I'm here to make you safer. So you ask, you know, whether you'd rather have a, a, a sniper who is a trained killer after you or a crazy person with a meat cleaver. The, the third question is, would you rather have a crazy person who's been trained and given the tools of a sniper <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's really part of the, the, the point of the film is the way um, it, uh, it, it sets up the idea of, and we had the terminology just a few minutes ago, the way uh, it, it sets up the sort of doctrine about the, about executive, the executive power of the presidency. And um, that really is part of what's sort of uh, unitary executive theory is mm-hmm. kind of what's uh, being uh, referred to today 
um, as uh, as Donald Trump has uh, uh, is. I don't know how, a good way to finish that thought. As as a lot of the things that Donald Trump is trying to do, that, um, Donald, there are yeah, people that are trying to use that doctrine that I think was was legitimized by Cheney that they're trying to uh, use yeah. that. And Cheney is advancing the power of the presidency that he, you know, it's interesting. Cheney uh, is uh, working with Bush senior and is really the force uh, behind the original Iraqi war. Uh, the, uh, and of course what Cheney wanted to do uh, even with Bush senior was to go in uh, just through executive power and stop Saddam Hussein uh, from, uh, you know, getting him out of Kuwait. And Bush Sr., uh, whatever you might think of him, at least he did not agree to that. Um, that he did get congressional approval, that there was, uh, you know, international approval in removing uh, Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. And, of course, the Bush's point is that if they had gone in and defeated Hussein, that at that point, that the Middle East depended on this guy. And whatever you thought of Saddam Hussein, what became obvious after his defeat and, you know, death is that the Middle East, you know, that the whole region then falls into trouble. And, of course, what Cheney does with Bush Jr. that he did not do with Bush Sr. succeeds, uh, that they go in. It is a, a war that, uh, through just uh, the executive order, that they uh, they go in without international uh, sanction, without and, and uh, on the basis of you know this has been well documented now the whole notion of some sort of uh, weapons of mass destruction. There were no weapons, and Cheney, even though he is the one setting this out time after time publicly. Mm-hmm. That there and there are there and even he seems to have known that he's getting reliable information that's telling him that's not the case. Also, connecting Hussein uh, with Al Qaeda, there was never any, you know, that he's trying to to portray him as a terrorist and uh, behind the nine eleven attacks. And of course, that is just totally unsubstantiated and seems just not to be true. But he takes that and he manipulates this information in order to create the the uh, desert storm, the 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 total destruction of of uh, the Saddam Hussein, which is a is a complete disaster in hindsight. It's a complete disaster, and I think, um, and I don't, I really don't know the historicity of this. Uh, you know, a lot of what I'm what I'm doing is I was watching the movie is going, Oh, I remember that. And I remember that. And Oh my goodness, that's a, I didn't think of that. Um, but there's a, uh, they really kind of come around to blaming Cheney, uh, and for the creation of ISIS that the, uh, the, the person that creates ISIS isn't well known, but that Cheney, um, draws attention to this guy says, Oh, well, here's a threat. And all of a sudden this guy and, and, and destabilizing 
Iraq by removing um, Hussein uh, just gives ISIS this um, this a the attention and b the power to uh, to become what it is. Um, and I, again, I I don't know the historicity of that, but there certainly is something in the story uh, that's worthy of a little theological reflection. Before uh, we go we start that talking, let, let me go give ahead. you this is the just just on the you know have we have we captured Dick Cheney. Here is the Atlantic runs an article. This is uh, this is an earlier article before the movie. Dick, this is the conclusion to an article running down the various you know uh, uh, Cheney adventures. Dick Cheney was a self-aggrandizing criminal who used his knowledge as a Washington insider to subvert both informed public debate about matters of war and peace and to manipulate presidential decision-making, sometimes in ways that angered even George W. Bush. And, of course, Bush, in subsequent to to all this, he said, oh, he didn't decide anything. But, of course, what is obvious is that uh, Cheney's pulling the strings. Cheney's in on on all of the... Mm -hmm. He even says this to Dan Quayle, the former vice president, who said, oh, it's just a, a figurehead sort of job. Uh, says that to Cheney, and Cheney says, "Well, I have other arrangements," and and clearly that's true. This continuing with the Atlantic. After his early years of public service, he capitalized on connections he made while being paid by tax uh, earners, taxpayers rather, to, to earn tens of millions of dollars. So, but through Halliburton, that he becomes the CEO of Halliburton. Here's a guy with no business experience who takes control of this company purely because of his uh, connections in the very countries that are going to be involved in the wars that he's he's starting. While while there, he did business with corrupt Arab autocrats, including some in countries that were enemies of the United States. Upon returning to government, and by the way, I think he got a $20 million severance package from, from Halliburton. Uh, he advanced a theory of the executive that is at odds with the intentions of the founders. That is, here is the, the notion of the uh, uh, unified power that he's going to describe his own activity much in the way that Trump does. It's clearly criminal activity or would have been, you know, depending on what you... Uh, but he's saying, well, sort of like Trump, that if the president does it or somebody in the executive uh, realm of power, then it's not a crime. And, of course, this is the whole that it's Cheney who gives us uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, waterboarding. Uh, he gives us Guantanamo Bay uh, or Guant- rather the uh, uh, uh prison in in uh, cuba what is it guantanamo yeah you're guantanamo Guantanamo. yeah Uh, he advanced a theory of the executive that is at odds with the founders uh to illegally spy on innocent americans so he's spying on millions of uh the citizens of this country passed on to the public false informations about mess mess uh, weapons of mass destruction in iraq and became directly complicit in a regime of torture for which he should be in jail. 
Thus, his unpopularity circa 2008 when he left office. Good riddance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I think the thing that, that, that stands out to me, so it, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me not to go start thinking about this theologically as someone who has um, embraced the idea that, that our faith calls us to a different kind of life that isn't that rejects the pursuit of power because of the violence inherent in the pursuit of power. Um, what stands out to me is for Cheney, it seems like those kinds of things are a necessity. Of course, we have to torture people. That's what we have to do to save American lives. That's it, it's taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't any moral um, question about that. Of course we do. Um, whether or not those people are guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter. Um, and I, as I understand, uh, there are people who have been tortured at Guantanamo who we don't know for sure whether, you know, what side they were on. Um, and, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of willingness from, from a lot of folks to ask that question or there to say it another way, there seems to be a willingness to just ignore the kind of moral ambiguity, at least a sense of moral ambiguity about it. And, and that, you know, that there are people there and it is under Cheney who literally have never been charged of anything, have no recourse to any kind of legal representation, uh, simply because they've been arrested as combatants and therefore all of the rights that would normally be accorded are suspended. It's Cheney who, who gives us that. And, I guess there's still people there that are that remain uncharged, and it's unclear why they're there. And and I don't think it's 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 hard to make the stretch that that reasoning is the same reasoning that allows us to say, okay, so these people are illegal based on where they come from, and that they come here uh, trying to gain. Um, trying to get a status of uh, of uh, they're they're trying to find safety, right? They're they're coming here from Guatemala, from Venezuela, uh, looking to um, uh, to find their way to somewhere safe, and because they are not citizens, we can do anything we want to them. As it turns out now, that the it, it, it seems more than just the initial few thousand uh, children that were separated from their parents. Um, it seems now that I'm hearing that there were many more that went all the way up to the beginning of Trump's presidency that were separated and that will never be able to find to reunite them with their parents. Um, 
there's a, a dehumanizing and, and Stan Hauerwas in in his uh, in his lecture on a call for the abolition of war. He has two sections of it where um, he talks about his project with Inda McDonough. And um, he, he wrote a, there's a book that covers that lecture called war and the American difference. But uh, Hauerwas talks about the ability that we have in war to dehumanize the other. And he talks about gooks, rebs, yanks, um, all the different terms, uh, krauts, uh, japs, all the different terms that we give to people so that they're not a human being, so we can do anything we need to to them. And I feel like that happens um, when you're talking about something like Guantanamo, when you're talking about illegal immigrants, we name them something, and now we have the ability and the right to do anything to them. Mm-hmm. That and and of course with that, there this gets into whole, Noam Chomsky's whole picture of what's happening with the you know the uh, manufacturing of consent. What whatever it, the intention may have been behind the Iraq War a desert shield, desert storm. Um, The way that the public is manipulated becomes obvious. Whether anybody believed in weapons of mass destruction uh, in the government may not have really mattered what that was used as a means of justification. And so the enemy, and first of all, you have to create the enemy and, and which is, kind of a problem with here you have this little bitty country that was really a vassal state of the United States. I mean, we created Saddam Hussein. And then you have this rhetoric that is built up around him as if he has these, you know, he's some sort of superpower threat, which is just ridiculous when you when you think in terms of the the reality this the that clearly the united states could, could have defeated him and what is less clear is that he was all uh, throughout this both incidents of invasion of, of the country was seeking some sort of diplomatic solution but they apparently did not want diplomatic solution and of course, Chomsky's point is, well, the reason they didn't want diplomatic solution is they wanted control of the various oil fields that uh, both in Iraq and, and in uh, Kuwait, which that's the end result uh, of both Bush one and Bush two. And so what you get in the, the, you get a, the creation of an enemy and then the demonization of this enemy. These are you know, this is in a sense, this is what has happened with Islam, that anybody that in some way adheres to this religion is, has become demonized. And then once you de- de- dehumanize them, then you can do everything that is necessary, anything that is necessary. Uh, and so the, the rights that are normally acu- uh, accorded under our, our own laws are suspended so that we're in a kind of continual emergency situation, a continual uh, suspension of rights to people who are continually deemed potential terrorists. Right. Well, the uh, there's a saying, and I can't remember where it comes from. It, it's kind of an old 
saying, but the first casualty of war is always truth. And that, um, that, yeah, I think Chomsky's right that there's a, um, it, it doesn't benefit us to find a, um, a solution to not going to war than when there's a, um, I mean, war has uh, such an economic impact on, it has an impact on the economy. It has an impact on, uh, uh, there's just a value to, to going to war that I don't know that, that we're, uh, a lot of folks are willing to, um, Examine, and of course, that's the that's the danger here is that uh, war is is a way of drawing attention <laughs> or and unifying uh, people like nothing else. Let me let me draw out. Let me I'll make a huge theological claim here and see if you uh, agree with it, and that is that in this movie. Here is here is a movie who, who, which is portraying a kind of sinister sort of evil that is at the heart of uh, the U.S. government. And of course, if you expand that historically, that what you have in this is a one-off situation. That what is manufactured then, what is continually presented to us is a, you know, this is the whole issue that's continually before us now, fake news. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's all fake. In other words, how do you, the the major news organizations are then tied in uh, to a certain, you know, whether it's right-wing, left-wing, there's really only a, uh, within that dialectic, there's only a certain set of choices that there is a kind of deception that's foisted upon people, especially in a wartime situation. But if you're in, if, you know, we're now in a continual war with these countries, uh, that we're, we're never in, you know, in a period in, in which we're not in an emergency situation. But let me suggest that this is simply a, an example of the way that the sin of deception always functions. In other words, what we, what we have in any culture, in any uh, uh, system of, of human uh, civilization, you might say, is always a sense in which the, the basis of that culture and civilization, it coheres it, uh, uh, on the basis of something that at its heart is false. Uh, that it, at its heart in an idolatrous you know, situation, and I think that's what we're talking about, you take something that is nothing, that ultimately these powers are, are demonized, they're blown up, so that the d- defeat of these powers becomes the very purpose, the very means. That is that nothing becomes a kind of absolute something. And that the case of Vice, this movie, is simply the case that always the way that the powers, the principalities and powers of this world always work, that we're always uh, being deceived, that a a deception is foisted upon us uh, in every realm, but most especially in the realm of government and in the the exercise of power. 
I think that uh, the, the the New Testament is full of that kind of reflection. That um, if if you uh, if you read, um, you know, I'm thinking of Revelation, uh, especially. Uh, you know, you read Revelation in a context of a Roman Empire, um, and you see all kinds of sort of this call, this. Uh, I don't know, a, a, almost like a, I guess I would describe it as a kind of uh, scream uh, about uh, the injustice done by power holders. Um, I don't, I, I can't deny um, anything that you've, that you've said based on my own experiences of people with power and the way I understand the entire New Testament. Well, if you're going to agree with that, let me step it up a point then. You know, you've never been able to like push me off quite that easily. <laughs> so I'm almost always going like, yeah, whatever you think is probably right. So, <laughs> And in this instance, Cheney, by the way, is a good Methodist. Bush, you know, is also a Methodist. I think it was the only time, in fact, when which you had a president and vice president uh, that were a part of the same church. Think of Bush Sr., you know, his last days. Uh, here's a man who's responsible, you know, if you take his South American ventures and his various uh, uh, ventures in, in the Middle East, he's probably responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths uh, that he's manipulated. Right. And he, his good friend, of course, is James Baker. And Baker describes, you know, his last scenes with uh, he he's coming over to see the president as he's dying of old age. And of course, what they're talking about, Bush Sr. is saying, well, you know, I uh, the one thing that I want is to go see Jesus, something like that, you know, and Baker. They're both good Christian men, right? Uh, Baker says, well, that's all that's important is that you're, you're going to go see Jesus. Uh, that here is a man who may be responsible uh, for hundreds of thousands, probably more deaths in his lifetime, that if you would take the criteria of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal, uh, there's no question that uh, both Bushes would be accounted, they would be uh, war criminals, good Christian war criminals, right? Right. And that all of this then, uh, under Bush, uh, under, I think even under Trump, maybe even more intensified under Trump, is not just simply that it's the exercise of the principalities and powers, the manufacturing of uh, consent, but it is done in the name of Christ. That is, that here is perhaps the ultimate sacrilege. Here is the ultimate idolatrous religion. You know, at least in, in an idolatry, there was the, the possibility that the uh, prophets would intervene and expose it. But once you've used the name of Christ to advance the war crimes, the deceit, that you're doing it in the name of Jesus. There is no recourse. There is no possibility of exposure. There is no fallback to a truth that in some way would undo this truth. It has become its own sort of final truth. 
that in a sense you're dealing with a kind of reified evil uh, that surpasses that of Rome. Romans never claim, right. you know, the, the, it's just good, good old emperor worship, good old paganism. And of course, what one wonders if that paganism is not preferable to a turning of evangelical Christianity or just Christianity into a kind of support to a, a sort of evil that is unprecedented. I don't think, I, I think John Howard Yoder, uh, for his faults, I, I think he's making a similar point, right? I mean, that it turns that paganism become, that Christianity becomes sort of a paganism when it gets co-opted by this political agenda. And, and I, my, Vanjie and I are constantly seeing in, in recent experiences we've had that like you said earlier, when you're talking about the fake news and all this, it isn't just the right wing that it, that that co-ops the religion um, that the that the left wing, uh, politically speaking, does as well. Um, that one once one thinks that one can go out and get power with which to do good, and and I'm always there's a part of me now because of you and your work that is always going back to, uh, to re-understand Paul's uh, claims in Romans about doing evil, uh, the, the, the wrong headedness of doing evil in order to accomplish good. And that, that really is a central idea of, of the problem of sin that's inherent in the gospel that that we don't do evil or do violence to accomplish good that that is part of the problem and that um and and but that is i think a part of the um that's a part of the the political world that we live in of course we have to do these evil things in order to make the world safe for democracy make America safe, save American lives mm-hmm. um, over over and against somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet what Jesus calls us to is to lay down our lives for each other, to even for our, the person that we claim to be our enemy. And this is something that's that I think liberal and conservative alike don't grasp that we're called the, the the call of Jesus uh, again throughout history you can see the cross of Christ being co-opted to be put on swords and shields but I, I think Greg Boyd is the one that first introduced me to this idea you don't pick up the sword without putting down the cross you can't carry them both and the, the cross is a willingness to die for one's enemy rather than kill one's enemy um, which in the last several years for me has meant that I have to very cautiously understand what it means to engage with the culture politically um, because to do any kind of politics is to pick up the sword. That politics is sort of, is is tied to 
picking up the sword. That was a bit of a uh, uh, stream of consciousness kind of well, random. No, no, I think that it ties in. And maybe you get the picture at you, uh, what is it, at the Air Force Academy, is it in Colorado, that the entire chapel is made of jet airplanes. You know, it's in the formation. And then at the front of the chapel, uh, there is a cross that's, you know, typically displayed. But when you go and look at the cross carefully, you realize that it's not actually a cross, but it's a sword. And of course, that's precisely what you're describing is that Christianity is turned into a kind of weapon uh, utilized then to justify the most extreme forms of violence which seems to be the ultimate sacrilege is that you're taking this faith. And I think where we're, where we're taking this is that a Christian faith that does not have peaceableness, that does not have nonviolence at its center in some way cannot claim to be a follower of the Prince of Peace, that that is integral to the entire movement of Christianity. It is the alternative. It is an alternative uh, piece to the violence, the war. And, and even, you know, you can picture this on a grand scale. What we're talking about in this talk is violence uh, in captures. That's just the way that nations work, that they necessarily uh, involve themselves in violence. And if, if you're going to call you, you know, America a Christian country or any kind of, of fusion of church and state, what that's necessarily going to have to do is to transform a religion of peace into a justification for violence. Now, I'd, I'd say that that's been mitigated somewhat. You know, this is, this is a slow development that maybe Constantinianism is not simply the outworking of a violent Christianity. Uh, just war theory arises in conjunction, you know, in this. But I think that in the, in the modern period, there is almost a step beyond Constantinianism in that mm-hmm. there is a transformation, an outward formation. You know, this happens obviously. I've written about this in, the, in my last blog, that in, in Germany... Uh, that you extract, expunge the Jewishness, which think about that, from the Bible. Well, you know, what's left. Uh, right. That uh, you get rid of the Old Testament, obviously. You get rid of uh, the major portions of the New Testament. And in a sense, you're, you're undoing, you're remaking the religion in the image of the state. That had a, that happened obviously in Japan, that I'm familiar with, is that they literally would have incorporated the emperor as a fourth member of the Godhead: God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Hirohito. Uh, I think that this form of transformation of this of of Christianity into the image of the state is something that's even beyond what Yoder is describing, that it's a step beyond uh, simply Constantinianism, but it's uh, the formation, I think, of a, of a different kind of religion 
in which there is an outright reification, in which there really is the belief that the culture, American culture, you know, in, in various instances, German culture, Japanese culture, is the, the essence of the mode or means of ultimate reality. The culture is salvation, that we are the city right. set on a hill. And so there is an outward. I think that by the, you know, what is the definition of the term antichrist? It's not, we often picture that as simply that that which opposes Christ. But I think what that misses, no, the antichrist, especially as John is dealing with it, are people who are in the church. There are people who are claiming Christ. You know, he says that anyone who does not say that Christ has come in the flesh is of the antichrist. These are Christian teachers uh, proclaiming the gospel, uh, claiming Christ. And so the Antichrist is Christianity, the name Christianity. Uh, But it's Christianity gone bad. It's the Christ that is posed as an alternative to what the New Testament Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.